Okay, um, so as Marshall said, my name is Mac Holt. Uh, I know a lot of faces in this room, some of you I don't know. My wife, Jessica, uh, is not here this morning. She's home with our two kids who are sick with non-COVID things. We've got a three-year-old and a three-month-old, so uh, sleep is a rarity. All right, um, our text this morning. We are in, it's not on the screen, uh, we are in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. I am going to read that, and we'll dive in. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, is also in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, thank you for the brisk weather. Thank you for November. Thank you for Hope Presbyterian and this time. Uh, to come and hear from your word. Lord, I pray that uh, your word would be proclaimed, that this wouldn't just be uh, the vain imaginations and ponderings of uh, my study, but Lord, that this would be your truth being proclaimed to your people. Lord, that they would see you as glorious and as a good father. Increase our love for you now, Lord. All this we ask in your name. Amen. So, uh, I'm a really big Stephen King fan. Uh, that might alienate half of you. Um, but I, I really like Stephen King, the author. And uh, I've read a lot of his books, and I just have become very intrigued about Stephen King and what he's like and all that sort of stuff. So I eventually bought his autobiography where he tells his own life story, and then he also like coaches you on writing and some things. And I learned a lot about him in his autobiography. But nowhere have I learned more about this author, Stephen King, than in one of his novels where he wrote himself into the story as one of the characters. I learned a lot about him from his autobiography, but I learned the most about him when he wrote himself into the story. Now, this isn't, that's not super uncommon. There's other authors who have done similar things. There's directors. If you know Alfred Hitchcock, he would at times show up in his movies as a passing character. We see this at times, but what you don't see is the author of a story inserting themselves into the story, but as the main character. 
I want you to imagine for a second that, um, let's go with Harry Potter. I think it's the greatest story of uh, my time. Um, let's imagine for a second that J.K. Rowling wrote herself into the Harry Potter novels, but she wrote herself in as Harry Potter. She became the central character of the story. Now what would happen is that they would become the most important character. Everyone else in the story would have to orient themselves and their life around this author writing themselves into the story. That's what we have in our text this morning. We get the author, God, announcing that he will indeed be stepping into the story. The playwright is going to walk out onto the stage. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, you, uh, you've been hearing the story about God. You've been getting pictures about who he is all along. It's kind of like reading Shakespeare, and in his plays, you're getting a picture of what Shakespeare is like by reading his plays. But you're going to really understand what Shakespeare is like if he walks out onto the stage, into the story. That's what you get in our text this morning. Hebrews 1 tells us, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know what that's saying? The author stepped into the story. This visit of the angel to Mary is the announcement that the author is approaching. The author is about to step into the story. Now that's either going to be delightful news or utterly dreadful. Depending on who you are in the story, depending on what role you play, depending on what character you are, that will be delightful or that will be dreadful. The God of the universe, creator of the, uni of, of the cosmos, omnipotent, omniscient, great, holy, powerful, and high, is about to enter the story. And that has profound implications for every single other character of which you and I consist. And we're going to see those implications by looking at three aspects of his arrival, beginning with the obscurity of his arrival. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear this word obscurity uh, or obscure, but the word simply means not discovered, unknown, or uncertain. This announcement to Mary, it seems totally and completely out of the blue. But if you were tracing the story, the story of Scripture throughout the Old Testament, you would know that the Jewish people were expecting a Messiah to show up. They were expecting some sort of God-sent hero who was going to free them from political oppression, restore them to greatness in the world. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting a climactic individual to walk out onto the stage and blow up everything, fixing it all. But they were not expecting a Messiah to be born to Nazareth. He's not going to be born in Rome. He's not going to be, bo be born in Jerusalem. He's going to be born in Nazareth. That's like if the Savior, the Messiah, was showing up in our day. He doesn't show up in New York City or Chicago or London, but in Nicholasville, right? That's unexpected. Shows up in this obscure little place. 
And not only this, but he's born, as the creed says, of a virgin. Now, Mary was most likely just a teenager. She's betrothed to be married to a carpenter named Joseph, who maybe has some distant relation to King David, but he's not anyone crazy significant. And she's a virgin, meaning the Savior is going to be born into circumstances that are going to draw a raised eyebrow. Suspicion, shame of those who know the mother, obscurity. Why is this how the author comes into his own story? Well, in part, it's to fulfill an obscure passage in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and he will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. Whenever you recite the Apostles' Creed, as you guys did, uh, at, you know, you do that at some points, um, you confess that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, was born of a virgin. To be a Christian is to believe this. What's the big deal about it, though? What is significant about a virgin birth? Why do we confess this? What's the big deal about a virgin birth? Like, why did Jesus not just show up on the scene as a fully grown man, live the rest of a perfect life, and then go to the cross? Why do you have to have a virgin birth? Because without it, you don't get incarnation. Without it, you don't get Emmanuel. Without it, you don't get God actually being with us. Like, you could have a God who watches you, who can maybe sympathize with your experiences, but without the virgin birth, you don't get a God who is actually with you. Conception is not just half of one and half of another joining together and you get like 50%, 50%. It's all of one and all of another joining to create something that is fully both. So when the angel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive, she rightly says, um, how? I'm a virgin. And the answer is that the Holy Spirit, God himself, is going to be upon you. Which means that the baby born is going to be fully God and fully man. Not half God and half man. Not God only. Not man only. But the baby born is going to be fully God and fully man. And only in this way can that obscure passage from Isaiah be fulfilled. Only in this way do you get God with us. And just as an aside to uh, any skeptical friends that we have here this morning, and if the virgin birth just seems too obscure, too strange, too unfathomable, I would just pose the question to you, um, is the virgin birth any more unbelievable? Is the virgin birth of the Savior any more unbelievable than the virgin birth of the universe? Now, why is this significant? Why is the virgin birth significant? First, I think it bears mentioning that this is significant because it shows just how far God is willing to go in order to be with you. He's willing to step into obscurity, to come in shameful circumstances, simply because he desires to be with you. This is what you were made for, his presence, being with him, and he will go to whatever lengths necessary in order to do this. 
Like think about the ridiculous things that parents do in order to be truly with their child, to actually enter into their world. As I mentioned, I have two boys. One's three months old, so being with him just means like tossing him up in the air and you know, cleaning up messes all the time. Uh, but then I have a three-year-old. And if you could walk into my house right now, you would see me running around my house acting like an absolute fool to be with him, speaking in language that sounds ridiculous, just being an absolute freak to be with my son. Think about the lengths a parent goes to be with their child. And all of your deepest longings point to your need to be with God. As St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And this was the first step. Jesus came to be with us in the incarnation so that the Holy Spirit might dwell with you right now, bringing you one day to the day when you will finally and fully be with God forever. This is the first step, a virgin birth. The incarnation, God with us, also means that Jesus can truly relate to you. So yesterday, uh, I ran, I was in Richmond, Virginia, running a road race. Um, and uh, I'm running, and it, Richmond really showed out for this race, and there's spectators everywhere along the sides of this race watching what we're doing. Um, and the spectators are cheering us on. They're watching us suffer. They're watching me cramp up and go to the side and start crying out in pain. They're watching all of this. I think that's sometimes how we think of God. He's just out there somewhere. He's watching us. He's throwing you some encouragement. Keep going, buddy. You're going to make it. I'll see you at the finish line. I have a different relationship with the other runners who were suffering with me. They actually get it. They understood what I was going through. That's what Jesus did. He actually entered in and knows fully what it is like to be a human. Fully what it is like to be a human. That means there's nothing that we can experience that our God cannot relate to. Literally nothing. The God of the universe understands your life because he became one of us. The incarnation also means that there's nothing insignificant about your life. I love the fact that Jesus, his ministry, doesn't start till he's 30 years old. That means he lived 30 years of, like, Mondays. 30, 30 years of Mondays. 30 years of insignificant, mundane, going about his life, learning a craft, getting in, you know, Mary probably tries to argue with him, Joseph probably tries to argue with him. I don't know what that was like. Imagine Jesus as a little boy, perfectly God, perfectly man, lit like, what? That's amazing. 30 years of insignificant, mundane living. That offers meaning to everything that we do. God himself did it. Gardening your craft, your schooling, parenting, whatever it is, deeply significant. God himself did it. Okay, that's the obscurity of his arrival. Now I want to look at the offense of his arrival. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. You shall call his name Jesus. Now, if you were my youth 
group right now, I'd say, what does Jesus mean? And maybe I'd get a shout out and a response, but uh, I don't know you all that well yet, so I'm not going to do that. But Jesus means salvation is from God. Salvation is from God. God comes to this earth not just to be with you, but to save you in order that you might be with him. Isaiah 53.5 prophesies about who this Messiah will be and what he will do. And let me read that to you. It says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He comes, he incarnates, he becomes a human being in order to be pierced, crushed for your sins. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus comes to take your sin upon himself and then to be punished for it. There is something deeply offensive to us about that fact. This has always been an offensive message, not just to modern ears that struggle with a God who would be a God of justice. Paul says in Galatians, the cross, the message of the cross is offensive. This offends our sensibilities. It offends us because it tells us that there's something broken, that there's something wrong with us. But not only that, but that that thing that's broken and wrong with us, this thing called sin that causes us to rebel against our Creator, that God will be just against those offenses. This is offensive to us. We would rather have God's forgiveness, but without His justice, and I have news, that's an impossibility. You cannot have forgiveness without justice. For forgiveness to happen, someone always pays. And we intuitively get this. We intuitively get this. I am a very, very bad driver. I often raise the ire, the anger of other drivers for cutting in front of them, other things. I'm just, I'm just a bad driver, okay? When you get cut off driving, or you see someone else driving recklessly, that feeling, that thing in your gut that rises up, that wants to you know, do the hand communication thing and yell at them inside your car, you know what that is? That's a cry for justice. And you have two options. You can either act on that, that thing that's rising in your gut. You can either wave the hands, do the, pound your steering wheel. You can either act out on that, or you can swallow it. Not let that desire for justice actually come out. Payment is exacted both ways. Whether you're letting them have it inside the confines of your car, or you're sitting there by yourself just holding it all in, Either you're trying to make them pay, or you yourself are going to pay. Whenever you see someone on social media, on your timeline, and they have a just a atrocious take about something, and you want so badly to comment on it, correct them, do something, that thing that rises up in your gut, I gotta tell them what's right, that's a desire for justice. Payment will be exacted. You either comment on their thing, telling them, buddy, you missed it trying to exact justice, or you swallow it. You incur the cost. We intuitively understand this, this need for justice, and it plays out on a broader scale. When truly offensive things happen in this world, we need someone to pay. Think of the last four years in our country. This desire 
for real wrongs that have gone unaddressed to finally be righted for those in the wrong, finally someone must pay for justice to be accomplished. And this is why Paul in Romans 2 says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. God is a God of justice. And we, a people who sin against him, are on the wrong end of his justice. There's only one way we can escape his justice or better said, be put on the right side of his justice. And that would be for amends to be made, for a price to be paid. And this is why Jesus came. This is why he incarnates. This is why he comes from a virgin. God is perfectly just. But as we saw in the first place, he is willing to go to whatever lengths necessary in order to have you. Our only hope would be for God's justice to be satisfied somehow. And that's exactly what he did. Because of his great love for us, God became a man in the person of Jesus in order to take our punishment that we deserve for our sins, to pay the price that we owed to God to satisfy his justice. God satisfied his justice by taking our punishment, our payment on himself. My goodness, what incredible news that is. He didn't come merely as a good man, not merely as a good example, not merely to conquer death, but to pay the price that we owe. To take on himself the price of his own justice. Praise be to God. Okay, finally, let's look at the obligation of Christ's arrival. Um, We don't pay enough attention probably to Mary. She's pretty incredible. Um, And just as a quick side note, in an era when women were uh, mostly considered like beyond second-class citizens, and especially when an unmarried teenage girl who's having a baby out of wedlock would have been shunned, pushed to the margins of society, that's who God decides to announce his arrival to. That's who God decides to actually step into our universe through. Profoundly significant. And then the greeting and the structure of this whole interaction that we saw on the screen uh, between the angel and Mary, that mirrors all the interactions that angels had with prophets in the Old Testament. So like Isaiah, Jeremiah, these big names from the Old Testament, Mary is being treated in the same way. That would be unheard of. If you were to be trying to like make up a religion, you wouldn't give Mary that much significance. But that's exactly what the gospel of Christ does. All right, so moving on. I want us to see Mary's response. Verses 28 and 29. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary's response. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this would be. Mary gets it. She's told God is with you. And she becomes very troubled. This is indeed very troubling news. It is extraordinarily troubling to find out that a holy God is coming into contact with sinful people. But then she's told the content of who this child is going to be, that he will be Jesus. He will be the Savior, heir to the throne of David. And her response, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. 
The news that the author has stepped into the story demands a response from every other character in the story. The centerpiece of history is the life of Christ. The life of the author stepping into his own story. And the author stepped into the story proclaiming salvation, his fulfilling his need for justice by taking our punishment on himself that we might then be brought into the kingdom of God as sons and daughters of the king. This is the message that the author stepped in and proclaimed. And he did it to the accompaniment, accompaniment of miracles and signs and wonders and then signed, sealed, and delivered the deal by being crucified and rising from the dead. This demands a response. The only thing you cannot do with it is be indifferent. That is not an option. You can reject the news. You can reject the news. Or, like Mary, you can say, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This humble, delightful submission is the only response to seeing the glory and the grace of God. A God who would go to such incredible lengths in order to step into the story to save you from your sin by taking the full punishment that his justice demands. All to have you. Do you not see what lengths your God has gone to in order just to have you? You've probably heard the parable of the man who discovers treasure in a field and then he goes off and sells all that he has in order to buy the field so that he can then get the treasure. We usually think of that as, oh, this is supposed to be our response to hearing the gospel. But what if that parable is actually meant in another way? What if that parable is actually the man in the story is God selling everything that he has in order to gain the treasure, which is you? And that's what he did. Do you see what your God has done to have you? Became a man, stepped into this messy, messy world, lived a perfect life, and then suffered and died in order to take your sins. That's what he's done to have you. And if you struggle with the justice of God, a God who demands payment for sin, do you not also see that in Christ his justice and his mercy meet? Yes, he demands justice. But because he loves you, he will not leave you to face his justice alone. Instead, he is going to face it for you. When we see his goodness, when we see who he actually is, Mary's response is our template. Let it be to me according to your word, O God, I am your servant. Let's pray. Father, you did not have to, but you wrote yourself into the story in order to save us, a people who don't deserve you, who don't deserve your love, who don't deserve your forgiveness. But God, simply because you love us, you came, you became one of us to save us, in order that we might forever and finally be with you. You are too kind to us, Lord. You are good to us. Make us to be your servants as you proclaimed with Mary. All this we ask in your name. Amen.